Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, everyone. My name is Andy Alabastro, and I'm the Director of Coalition Relations at the Heritage Foundation. And welcome to today's webinar, Crisis Communications for Leaders, Guidance in Responding to COVID-19 and Other Crises. The first thing we'd like to say is that we hope everybody is safe and well in dealing with this crisis as best they can, and that their families and their friends are also safe and well. Today's webinar, we're going to discuss three things, how you can apply lessons learned from other national crises to the current pandemic, how you can prepare for future crises by having a response plan in place, and how you can communicate with both those inside and outside of your organizations in the midst of uncertain circumstances. We're pleased to have two guests with us today, Dr. Steve Bucci. Steve has served in the uh, Armed Forces as a special, uh, excuse me, in the Army's Special Forces for three decades, and he's a top Pentagon official, and he's a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's also a professor and a teacher of leadership, so, Steve, we thank you for your service, and we're pleased to have you with us up with us today. Thanks for having me here. Great. Thank you, Steve. Also, we're pleased to have Greg Scott with us. Greg is the Director of Communications at the Heritage Foundation with deep experience in communications and media relations and media operations. Greg's career has included uh, stints as a public affairs officer at the Department of Homeland Security, over a decade at the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is the world's largest religious freedom legal advocate, his career started in the communications field as an active duty U.S. Marine. And so, Greg, for your 10 years uh, in active duty, we thank you for your service, and we're also pleased to have you here with us today. Thanks, Andy. I'm excited about this program. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, so, everybody, what I'd like to just call your attention to, quick housekeeping. On the right-hand side of your screen, you'll see where you can submit questions, and that's where we would like you to focus. There's a questions tab. We Submit your questions there, please. And if you can also ignore both the chat and ignore the raise hand features, because we're not focused on those, we want you to submit questions there for Dr. Bucci and for Greg. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Steve. He's going to hand it off to Greg, and then I'll come back and we'll facilitate some Q&A. We accept your questions throughout the program, but we'll get to those. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Andy. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for all of you who've joined us. Uh, as noted, uh, my background is the military, but also spent quite a bit of time in other parts of the government. Uh, and I'm here to give you a bit of a historical perspective. Uh, crisis is where leadership really comes to the fore. Uh, communicating in a crisis is a fundamental leadership function. And even if you're not the biggest boss, you, you've got to get that message across uh, if you're a subordinate leader, you still have a role in this, and that's what we're going to be talking about uh, this afternoon. Uh, for us, uh, there's some principles that you have to follow as a leader in communicating to all of the various audiences that are out there. The first fundamental one is honesty and transparency. If you lie about a crisis, you will be found out. That's been, always been the truth. It's way more so the truth now than it's ever been before. Don't do it. It doesn't work and it'll cost you big time. So be honest, be transparent. But also, you can't be the harbinger of doom. You have to give your audiences some hope. They have to feel your leadership brings a calm and a stability to the situation as you communicate. If you fail to do that, you're just going to be roiling the waters and it's going to make things worse. The next principle is remember you communicate with more than just the things you say. Everything you do, the actions you take, your body posture, uh, the, your demeanor, 
all communicate a message to the audiences that are out there. And as noted, I'm not saying audience, I'm saying audiences, plural, because there are lots of audiences you have to reach. Obviously, if you're a public figure, you're reaching to the press and through them reaching out to the public, but you're talking to your bosses, you're talking to the people that you have as peers, and you're talking to the subordinates you have within your organization. You have to address all those. Now, the two examples that I'm gonna be giving you were uh, crises that I participated in. One is the 9-11 attack on the Pentagon. I was the military assistant to Secretary Rumsfeld that day, and I watched him, a very seasoned national level leader, communicate to the people around him. Very specifically, I wanna mention uh, the aspect of it where he made the decision to stay in the Pentagon after the attacks occurred. There were lots of people that day who said, oh, Mr. Secretary, we've got to move you. You have to go to an alternate site. Uh, we, we can't be sure if there's going to be more attacks. The communications might go down. Uh, it is absolutely necessary for you to move. He made the decision after not a lot of thought. Um, you could see he considered it before he said anything, but he said, no, we're going to stay here. Unless you can tell me that there's another plane inbound that put all these people at risk from that attack, we're going to stay here. He naturally had dismissed non-essential personnel, but he kept a good number of us there. And when we kind of looked at him questioningly, he said to us this, said the American people expect the defense of this nation to emanate from this building, meaning the Pentagon. And unless there's a darn good reason for us to go someplace else, I don't care if it's safer, we're staying here. And at the end of that day, when I watched the secretary go up for a final press conference, flanked on either side by the Senate uh, or the the chairman and uh, minority member of the ha uh, Senate Armed Services Committee, and he spoke to the nation, we all knew that he had been right. He had messaged that so perfectly, communicated the seriousness of it to us, his immediate staff, to the rest of the military, to the public, and most importantly, communicated it to the people who had attacked us. So lots of audiences, lots of uh, messages being sent all at once. The next event, a few years later, was when Hurricane Katrina hit the city of New Orleans. Uh, an enormous crisis there. In that one, the Secretary of Defense was not the primary focus of the, the crisis. He was a supporting player, uh, but in it, he, I could see in his actions the cognizance that no victory counts except the one for the whole organization, or in this case, for the whole nation. Uh, in that, the governor of, New, of Louisiana, frankly, was hesitating. She, she wouldn't take action. She wouldn't ask for help, but she didn't seem to have the means to help her people herself. Things were getting worse and worse in New Orleans. Uh, and the president almost decided to invoke the Insurrection Act and take over the state of Louisiana to try and get something moving. There, if that had happened, if we had declared martial law, essentially, the Secretary of Defense would have been running the state. Uh, pretty big thing. You know, Some people may have said a big stage for him to play on, but he didn't do that. He very specifically told all of us, and most importantly, told the president, there he had a, an audience of one, that's not what you should do, Mr. President. You need to get her to ask for help from us that we can give under her authority and leave her in place. You do not want to be the, the Republican president who takes over a state from a female Democrat governor when her state capital was still functioning. Terrible messaging all the way around if that would have happened. 
So instead, we sent a National Guard general to talk to her and explain this, the system more completely, explain that she would still be the person in authority uh, and we would just be there supporting her. He made the case, she signed the request, and the, the troops and the equipment began to flow into New Orleans to help the citizens of that city and the surrounding areas. Uh, there, a, very, a man with a very big personality putting his personal victory aside to support a smaller player down there in the state governor because that was the right thing to do. So in all those situations, honesty, transparency, calm and confident, but understanding the different places that they had to go. Now I'm gonna leave that as a scene setter. I'm gonna turn it over to Greg and let him get into some of the nuts and bolts of how you do those principles that I just talked about. We'll uh, get back to you in a little while when we take some questions. Steve, thanks so much. That uh, that set the stage so well. Uh, your uh, experience is a uh, is a rich resource for all of us. So thank you for that. Uh, like Steve said, I'm going to get down to the nuts and the bolts. Uh, you may notice on the slide that I've broken this down into four parts, and I promise you that it is uh, accidentally relevant that the first three points are PPE of crisis communications. Um, it's accidentally relevant, but it is truly relevant because dealing well with a crisis is the personal protective equipment for our organization. So first I'll jump into principles and I'll go over three principles of effective crisis communications. The first is remember who you are. Most of us on this call are part of mission-oriented organizations and businesses. So while a crisis may present a challenge, it shouldn't shake our core. It shouldn't cause us to be knocked off course or as we say here at the Heritage Foundation, it shouldn't cause us to drift from true north, our, our guiding principles. When the dust settles, you still have a mission to accomplish. And while, this, uh, cri while a crisis might at least temporarily reorder your priorities, you don't want it to define you for all time. Following a crisis, you wanna settle back into mission posture as soon as possible. The second principle I want to talk about after remembering who you are is remember who your people are. And Steve uh, touched on this a bit uh, a minute ago. No matter who you are or what you do, you are responsible for other people. In the midst of a crisis, you can't forget that you not only have the duty to preserve your interests, but you're likely stewarding the resources of donors, customers, clients, and even a movement. And you also have a team that needs to feel secure in the midst of a storm and a team that needs to trust you after the storm has passed. And for a number of people on this call, um, I'll, I'll say something even, uh, even bigger than that. You may be even responsible for the reputation of an entire political or social movement. Many of us have chosen to work in the realm of ideas and advocacy and activism. So be mindful that your people might include an entire movement including the people that are do, also doing the work alongside you uh, to get uh, good ideas in place from a policy perspective. And how you navigate that crisis can have ripple effects throughout an entire movement and can bring either honor or shame to your entire, uh, to your entire movement or cause. So that's important to remember. The third principle I'll go over is that it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when. Crisis is inevitable. And there are two sources of crisis, those ones that are sourced from within your organization, those things you have direct, direct responsibility for, and then there are crises you will encounter from outside your organization. And I don't think I need to convince anybody uh, on this call that we are currently in that situation. So whereas something might occur outside of your organization that you cannot control, you may, may have to make some tough decisions for your organization or for yourself that may lead to some crisis uh, uh, communication response uh, opportunities. Now, not all of us will deal with crises uh, directly like 9-11, um, like those international existential crises as Steve talked about. And both Steve and I had a role in uh, responding directly to 9-11, him at a, uh, Steve at a much higher level than, uh, than uh, I did as a young uh, officer at Camp Pendleton. But um, at the local, individual, and organizational level, a crisis can be the turning point that either saves or ends the thing that you've been working all of your life to achieve. 
So next I'll jump over to, uh, over to planning. Now, the most important, th this is the most important thing about, uh, about what I'm uh, going to say uh, at, at all today, is that planning is the most important thing you can do. The most important time for any organization in any crisis is before the crisis happens. Organizations perceived by the public to be relatively crisis-free are typically those organizations that have invested time in planning. It's not that they don't experience crises, because many do, it's that they planned well and events that would have been uh, major crises for others became not even a blip for the well-prepared organization. So planning is key. But before we talk about planning specifically for a crisis communication situation, let's talk about deep planning, about establishing something before you even have to think about a crisis. And that's, that's building relationships, growing your reputation as a helpful, trusted source of solid, accurate information in the media, in the community, and other audiences that you'll have to deal with when crisis does hit. And when that crisis comes, if you've built those relationships, if you've invested that time, you're more likely to be given the benefit of the doubt and more time to get your response in order because you've invested the time it takes to build the trust that you need when you're responding to a crisis. So part of planning, uh, the first step in planning is picking a crisis communication leader. Again, that is your first step. And I'll present five A's related to choosing that leader. Those A's are authority, alert, agility, availability, and alternate. Now, first I'll go over authority. Uh, the person you pick as your crisis communication leader isn't just a person that requires respect of his or her team, although that is necessary. The crisis communication leader must be given the authority to build a team and make decisions during, the cri during a crisis because in many crises, there's not a moment to waste and you can't put a bunch of bureaucratic red tape between that crisis communication leader and the decision that needs to be made. Uh, next, I'll talk about alert. And when I talk about alert, I'm not talking about the person who sees the crisis and then runs throughout the halls yelling, the crisis is here, the crisis is here. Rather, this person must be a trend spotter, somebody that is well-connected to the news cycle uh, with an elevated vision to see over the horizon and understand the emerging threats before they materialize or metastasize. Somebody that really understands the communication environment and understands what threats might visit your organization. Uh, next, I'll talk about agility, that third A. The crisis communication leader needs to be able to change direction in a moment and feel comfortable communicating clearly in multiple languages, and I don't mean literally, so to speak, uh, communicating through different, uh, different media and um, uh, through different uh, audiences. And, uh, that will, uh, and that will depend on um, what kind of environment uh, somebody finds themselves in uh, during a crisis. Uh, next, I'll talk about availability. The crisis communication leader can't be that guy whose response to a call or an email is a cause for a national holiday. This person is engaged, committed, mission-focused, and a, and a good team player. Uh, finally, uh, the last A, the fifth A, is alternate. You need a deputy crisis communication leader as well. Uh, the first reason is that your crisis communication leader likely has something uh, that's known as a life. And crises can't always wait until uh, the, the crisis communication leader's plane lands. Action needs to be taken now, so you need to have that deputy in place to uh, fill the void when needed. Second, your leader might be the cause of your crisis, and you don't want the source of the crisis to be leading the crisis response. That's a principle that applies across the board. Uh, second, in, um, uh, second part of planning I'll talk about is processes. Uh, you need to have a simple plan in black and white on paper to get everybody on the same page. You need to have your crisis communication plan written down. And again, it's got to be simple. I was looking over crisis communication plans earlier, and I found one from a university that is 214 pages long. Now, they might have a lot of things that they have to deal with, but no crisis communication plan should be that uh, long. It should be simple and accessible for everybody who needs to know what the plan is. Uh, some other things you want to consider in your planning are who your audiences are, as Steve mentioned you have multiple audiences, uh, who do you need to communicate to internally and externally? You wanna, gonna, you're going to want to consider the communication channels that you'll have to deal with. Who do you need, where do you need to communicate? And then the stakeholders, whose interests are impacted by how well you communicate in a crisis situation. And finally, this is, and this is just a small detail, but it's very important. When crisis hits and you start getting those calls, you don't want to say nothing 
You want to have some messaging placeholders. So the first call you get from the media or the first call you get from a donor, you could say something, um, something of mild substance like, uh, we know of the situation, we're taking it seriously, and um, we will get back to you when we've collected all the facts and we know what our next move is. So again, don't say nothing. No comment is the worst thing that you can possibly say. Uh, next, I'll talk about in planning uh, possibilities. You want to game plan scenarios. Uh, before, you consider how, before you consider how bad any crisis can hurt, you have to understand what crises are possible moral failures in leadership, financial scandals, employees behaving badly, the list is longer than you think. Uh, your crisis communication leaders should gather a team and brainstorm a list of potential crises and categorize that list according to the threat levels most relevant to your organization. You'll consider everything from minor administrative matters to major existential crises, but you should whiteboard this, you should game plan this, you should know what crises are um, are. are are possible for your organization and categorize them so you know what to do in the execution phase, which we will, which we'll talk about right now. Um, uh, again, I'm I'm going to hammer on planning because planning will determine whether you grab the water hose or the gas can during a crisis. The quality of your planning is the best predictor of your success. You'll know if you've planned well, whether you're controlling the crisis or the crisis is controlling you when that crisis hits. So we need a system to check ourselves during the crisis. And a simple method that I will suggest is probably familiar to those of you with military backgrounds. It's called the OODA loop. Now, um, for those unfamiliar with OODA looping, it's not an activity that violates social distancing, I promise, and it's not an, it's not an activity only for six-year-olds. Uh, it's actually a really good um, uh, decision-making process that you can use within uh, the execution phase of a crisis communication situation. And the OODA loop includes four elements, O-O-D-A, observe, orient, decide, and act. In the observation phase, you're asking, what is the situation? So those game plan, that uh, game planned uh, whiteboard, ex whiteboard exercise I talked about, you're gonna have to look at that and say, okay, what, what's happening here? Uh, orientation phase, which is the next O, is what threat category are we dealing with? So you, so you know the situation, and now you're gonna place that in the threat category. Then you go to D, which is decide, what should we do with this? And then act, you do it, you execute the plan. And it's not only a one-time thing. Uh, it, as you know, it's, a, it's an OODA loop, not uh, an OODA spectrum or an OODA line. You're going to repeat the loop as you move through the steps of your crisis response plan until the crisis is contained. Uh, finally, uh, you, don't, uh, you don't go through a crisis and then just leave it at that. You do need after action. Hard grading is good planning. Learn your lessons, be honest, face hard truths about how you did. Uh, you can have a, you'll be doing a damage assessment, but crisis can also mean opportunity. So you may have a praise report uh, to, um, uh, to share as well. How do we pick up the pieces? or what, what have we gained through this opportunity? You're going to do, need to assess that. And finally, this is the last point I'm gonna make before I kick it back over to Andy, is uh, recognition. Uh, there's going to be a lot of people that sacrifice during a crisis communication um, uh, event. Uh, you're gonna to wanna to recognize those people who have done the hard work uh, to maintain your reputation and to get you through the crisis, uh, to uh, take you through the storm and bring you out, bring you, uh, out on a, at a better place than you were before. So recognition of those hard workers is very important. And with that, I'm going to kick it back over to Andy. Thanks very much, Greg, and thank you very much, Steve. Uh, we're getting a lot of good questions in, so I just want to remind people, please use the, uh, the, the questions tab over there for your questions. We're going to try to get to as many as we can. Uh, a couple of people have asked if we will be sharing this as they're taking notes and, and distracted by things at home, which I think we're all accustomed to uh, during these days. And so the answer is yes, this is uh, being recorded, will be available on the Heritage website, and, uh, and you'll have access to that through the same email and the same registration that, uh, that you joined us through. Uh, quick question for, for you, Greg, and for you, Steve. Um, with your military backgrounds, it, it brings to mind, you know, the famous quote from General Eisenhower, where he said, plans are nothing, but planning is everything. And, and so I wonder, you know, I think we covered off on it a little bit, but maybe just your response to that about how crisis planning, Greg, you emphasized is so important, important. And Steve, you emphasized kind of the rhythm of it with leadership that you're working with. Is that innate when you're in a military sort of position and you're trained in that way? What can people take away from that? How can they apply, you know, everything 
maybe plans aren't everything, but planning is everything. Maybe, uh, Steve, if you could comment on that, and then Greg, you too. Okay. Uh, this, a lot of people use that quotation, and they think, you know, it's, it's sort of trite, but it's not. Uh, we go through the planning process knowing that when something really happens, it isn't going to be exactly like the plan. It, it, the threat is going to be different. It's going to be a novel virus, not you know something we've already dealt with. Uh, so we understand that plans are there as a start point. So you have a good plan that gets you part of the way to the goal line, and then you adjust from there. And that's where that agility, that transparency, that those unexpected things have to be dealt with. Uh, but you use the plan as a point of departure. If you can do that, you can save yourself a lot of grief. Trying to make it up as you go along in the midst of the crisis is really a bad idea. That's a disaster, and you almost never come out with a good outcome if, if you just if you haven't done anything to prepare. Yeah, it's like, uh, it's like whether, uh, it's deciding whether you're gonna build your house on rock or on sand. You need a, you need a firm, you do need a firm foundation uh, before you, uh, really before you do anything. This, does, this doesn't just apply to crisis communications, but it especially applies to crisis communication. And there's no bigger crisis communication situation than war. And um, and Eisenhower was was exactly was exactly right. And you know Murphy's law isn't always right that you know uh, the plan doesn't survive first contact with the enemy. In fact, it it frequently does. If you're if you're planning correctly, um, you are um, uh, setting yourself up uh, hopefully better than the enemy has. Excellent. Thank you both for that. Here here's a question from uh, Christine Senerjewski, and she says. What are some recommendations for when decision makers within an organization have differing views? And uh, perhaps we can expand that to say, you know, if you're in a corporate setting, a general counsel might say, let's not comment. Your press lead may say, let's definitely comment. You know, you have different camps within either a corporate setting, even a, you know, within a nonprofit setting. Everybody kind of has their point of view. How do you how do you think through that process? How do you, you know, what's the first rule or what's the sequence you might take somebody through? Uh, well, I'll start and then pass it to Greg. Uh, the first thing is just what Greg was emphasizing is that planning process. If you have walked through these hypothetically before the event, you're most of the way there. You you're, you should know, yeah, we're going to comment, you know, how much there may still be some debate on the details, but you kind of know where you're going. The other aspect of that is somebody's got to be the decision maker. Somebody's got to be the one who can cut the, the metaphorical baby in half if that's what's necessary. And that's the leader. The leader of the organization has to make the call. And if you have a really strong general counsel or a really strong public affairs person, uh, the leader still needs to be the strongest one in the room and be able to say, I hear you, that's not what we're doing, we're doing X. And that, that's how it gets resolved. Leaders listen to all their advisors, and then they make the decision. Yeah, that's right. And uh, alternatively, if the uh, if the uh, president or CEO or executive director of the organization uh, doesn't feel uh, doesn't feel equipped as the primary crisis communication responder, the person that is assigned that duty must have the authority to make the decisions. Because if that person doesn't have the authority to make the decisions, you've wasted you've wasted a lot of time. You've wasted a lot lot of opportunity, and you're going to be uh, you know you're going to be one of those organizations that. Uh, that ends up in a textbook is failing spectacularly in a crisis communication situation. Can I add one thing, Andy? Yes, sir. Uh, if, if you are in a situation where you are the one dissenting from the decision, you need to be straightforward about that. You need to bring it up to the decision maker and say, look, this is what why I disagree. This is what I think we need to do. And take your shot, even if, even if it's pushing it a little bit. Don't ever be the person who says, well, I disagree with this, so I'm going to go back channel mm -hmm. and, and backbite against the decision. If, if you got to do that, resign and get out of there because you're, <laughs> you're just being destructive 
And I got to tell you, that reputation will follow you around. You don't ever want to be that person. Be straightforward. If you disagree, state it behind those closed doors and give the decision maker the, the value of your advice. But if you don't win the argument, suck it up or leave. That's right. It's a great point. We, and I, I can tell we have an anonymous question here that must, it relates directly to this in, in an in a in-sync sort of way. What are some traps that leaders would fall into? I, I presume one might be not listening to outside counsel from close, uh, you know, close advisors and others. But but what might be another trap or two that a leader could fall into? If you could both comment on that. Uh, that's probably the biggest one. Nobody, I don't care how brilliant you are, can navigate a crisis alone. If you think you can, you're already in deep trouble. Uh, the reason you have hired people around you, a public affairs expert, a legal expert, technical experts in, in your particular organization's function, they're there to give you their best advice. You don't have to take the advice, but you're a fool if you don't listen to it, consider it, and really weigh it heavily before you make your decision. If you decide to go against that advice, understand that's on you as the leader that's your role but you know it it's like if you're married you're kind of a bonehead if you don't listen to your spouse at least get their point of view uh and you will pay a price for it later uh i i listen to my wife all the time she's actually smarter than i am uh, and has a great touch with people that i sometimes don't have as a leader i i'm looking for subordinates that can give me that same sort of completion that I get from my wife within my marriage. I would say another uh, another thing that a leader should not do is treat everything as a crisis and overreact even to small slights and things that don't really matter. I mean, if um, you know, if there is a financial scandal at your organization or something like that, of course, that's something that needs to be dealt with. But um, I've known of leaders who will send their staff on wild goose chases through Twitter threads and uh, refute everything that Spartacon 96783 has said about that leader with their egg with their uh, egg avatar. So, uh, you know, there's um, uh, have good um, have a good crisis communications leader, if it's not that overreacting executive, uh, to have that plan out in front of them and have, you have that leader understand, you know, what you know, what category this particular situation falls into, uh, you can head off uh, a lot of uh, a lot of wasted time and a lot of wasted resources on non crises. Those these are great points. We've got about three questions that touch on the same thing. So, so I'm going to kind of meld them together to say, like, when you're this, what about fending off opponents, right? And so, and so you were mentioning, Greg, you know, sort of how you respond to certain things, but there are maybe opponents who exploit the vulnerability, but do you engage them? Do you ignore? How do you assess which ones matter, which ones don't? What's the sort of thinking on that? Greg, maybe you could start and then Steve could comment. Sure, a credibility assessment is uh, is key in that. Uh, if you do have, again, if if it's just uh, you know, if it's just troll bait, it's probably something that you want to uh, that you want to avoid responding to because uh, if you are in a crisis situation, uh, everything's moving fast and you only have so much time to respond. Uh, so you want to triage who you're responding. To. So if there's a um, a big um, uh, if there's a big piece coming out in the New York Times, that's going to be more important than right wing watch saying that you know Steve Bucci said something nationalistic or you know some other ridiculous charge. Uh, so it's really just a matter of um, you know looking at you know OODA looping it. You know who is this? Um, uh, you know who is the attacker? And is this attacker uh, you know just an ankle biter or is it Thanos? Yeah, and th that that calculation of how big a threat is it, how credible a threat is is this pushback, is an enormous one. Uh, not all criticisms are worth responding to, so you got to do the triage. Just respond to the ones that are doing you damage, not the ones that nobody else is reading other than you. Uh, I can tell you, you will always be more sensitive about somebody saying something about you or your organization than any of the other observers. And you, what you don't want to do is push back on everything and thereby give credence 
to those critics and give basically give them more airtime because right. when you when you respond back you just amplified their message by however many you know people are listening to you so right. there's some if you just ignore them they'll go away but there are some that you have to respond to you should respond to but pick those spots out that's where a good public affairs person is enormously helpful to the boss and say look you know this this is getting looked at here here and here i know you think this one doesn't mean very much but we do need to respond to it or another one where the boss wants to go on national tv and the public affairs guy says no no boss just just let this one die yeah. uh that that's where you've got to you know utilize those assets and we get a question here from george mayfield this is how do you keep the and I think we're touching on that too, which is the platforms that you that you engage on, whether you're engaging with an opponent or communicating with the public. There's there's the platforms that you use, the press being obviously you know a one. And when you're in a military situation or government situation, it's the fourth estate doing its job to check and ask the questions that need to be asked. But how do you think through that piece? How do you engage with them, and, and how do you make that a part of your planning? Go ahead, Greg. You can go first. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, the uh, you know, as much as people like to uh, bag on the media, and uh, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of merit to many of the complaints about how the media operates in today's environment. But uh, for the most part, uh, journalists are uh, good, hardworking people uh, that really want to provide a service to the American people. And uh, if you treat if you treat the press with respect. Um, throughout your career, and you build those relationships, and um, you you create uh, you create trust. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, you get a lot more um, uh, you get a lot more leeway uh, when you have treated uh, when you've treated these professionals with respect. And if something uh, you know if a crisis communication uh, uh, situation hits, and that reporter calls you, and you've known them you've known that reporter for ten years, and you've developed that relationship, and and you've built that trust and provided solid, accurate information. I've always been a good resource uh, for that uh, for that uh, reporter or that producer. Uh, you are going to, um, uh, that, that's, that's a very important part of, as I said before, that deep planning, that pre-planning uh, for a crisis situation. Yeah, I've, I've found if you show someone respect, they will usually, not always, but usually give respect back to you or at least give you the benefit of the doubt they may still run a story, but they'll call you first, they'll talk to you, get your side of it, or even give you a little time and space to get ready to respond to it. That, you know, it it sounds like the old thing of, you know, you catch more flies with, with honey than you do with vinegar, but it's uh, sometimes it's just being positive to, to the other person. I know somebody out there will be thinking, Booch, you work for Rumsfeld, he used to hammer the press. Uh, true. <laughs> But there's not many people out there that are Don Rumsfeld. So I would not recommend adopting his style of, of interaction with the press unless you got his resume. And I don't know too many people who do. So I would stay away from that. Show respect. Give people a benefit of the doubt. Be wary, but uh, trust them. And most of the time, you'll you'll benefit. Yeah, It's an interesting point, too, to, to note, as you know from experience, both of you, that as platforms and as media has evolved, right? Don Rumsfeld's career starts when media is a very different level of engagement or in which to engage and, and how you drive a narrative versus today when there's many other levers at your disposal to, to do certain things. So that's an interesting, uh, uh, accurate and interesting assessment that, that, that we're talking about. Uh, here's a question from Dominic Rapini, and that, I like this one a lot. In managing a crisis, do you see danger in over-delegating or losing control of how you manage the crisis. I think that's an interesting point, right? How, Steve, how do you think about, you know, leadership in crisis and properly delegating? Then, you know, Steve, if you can comment, then Greg. Uh, this this is sort of the, the conundrum of, of leadership is you can probably do it better than anybody else. You know, generally the leader is the most experienced, the, you know, the most capable person in their organization. But if your organization is bigger than a couple of people, you can't do everything. 
it's too complex to, to do that. You have to trust others. It's your job to train those people up before the crisis hits. So when the crisis does occur, they're ready to do their job and you can trust them to do it. And you're comfortable delegating that information or that, that function to them. Uh, it's, it's tough because your instinct is going to be to run and grab the ball yourself and, and deal with it. But you got to trust your people. Uh, and because it allows you to then pick your spots to really be effective as the leader when there's some big issue or aspect of the issue that you want to weigh in on. And if you've been dealing with every jot and tittle that's come up, uh, you've wasted all that capital. So train your people beforehand, practice to make sure you have that trust, and then allow them to do the job that you've trained them to do. Any thoughts on that, Greg, or are we ready for the next question? Yeah, get to the next one. All right, this is good. We've got we've got we've got a bunch in here. We're going to try to to, to get through get through them, uh, and, and we appreciate all the good ones that are coming in. Uh, here's one from from Thalia Rampersand and Greg. She says you mentioned that you don't want the crisis to define the leader, but have there been specific experiences that you've witnessed or or in your career that you've seen where the crisis did define the leader, and in your assessment, where did that breakdown happen? Yeah, actually, um, uh, I would say that uh, we don't want uh, failure in a crisis to define a leader, but success in a crisis should define a leader. And um, I will I will go back to um, crisis uh, defining a leader because of the success um, uh, the, the success they had at the front end anyway. So no matter what you think about follow-on military operations in response to 9/11, no one can tell me, as somebody who does this for a living, that President George W. Bush did not respond as a leader and give confidence to a nation. From that moment where Andy Card whispered in his ear while he was reading to a classroom full of children and he reacted exactly as he was supposed to, he showed he was ready for this moment. He gave that joint address to Congress um, on September 14th. I was driving around near Beale Air Force Base on a uh, urban warfare exercise and I had to pull over because it, it just got me. He stood on top of that rubble and said, I hear you. I, I still can't um, watch that without uh, without choking up. And then when I see him throw that when I see him throw that pitch right down the pipe during the World Series, I mean that is a that is a guy who was defined by crisis and got A plus marks all all around. Because I know I think everybody I, I think most people on this maybe maybe not Thalia she was a little bit young when uh, <laughs> when 9/11 happened, but I think most of us remember each one of those moments very clearly, and it did definitely define um, President Bush's uh, presidency for history. Great, Steve. Any comments on that? Uh, no, I, I would agree completely. I mean, you've got to do everything to not allow failure in a crisis to because it will define the leader forever uh, for good or ill could be the greatest person in the world up to that point but no one will remember anything but that failure uh, going forward but if you can do well if you can hit it out of the park you're kind of good forever at least for that part of of history and that's what you're shooting for that's why you take these steps it's why you do the planning you practice you, you work it out, you look for the right people in the right jobs, because when the crisis comes, that's the team you're gonna play with, leaders. And if they're not the right people or you haven't prepared them properly, it's on you. Uh, so take the time, make the effort, don't sit there and think, this'll never happen to us, because it does, always. And uh, you need to be ready for it. Excellent. All right, so so we're coming up close to the to the end point here, but we're going to do a couple quick questions because they're coming in uh, and there's some good ones in here. But we'll start with you, uh, Greg, and get your reaction to this quote, and then you, Steve. George Bernard Shaw said that the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. What is your thought on that in terms of crisis communication? <laughs> I. I you know what? I, I would probably uh, I, I would probably have to agree with it in one sense, uh, but disagree uh, in another sense. Uh, you know whether uh, you've communicated well or not, or you should. Yeah, I, I would agree if what you're talking about is just because you said something 
you think everybody understands it. Uh, you've communicated it, but have you really done communication? Not necessarily. There's follow-up, there's repetition, there's different means of communication that have to support that initial message. Just having a press conference doesn't always work. There's other steps that you have to take, and I think that's truer today with all the means of communication we have than ever before. Yeah, maybe maybe piggyback on that and talk about you're an organization, you know, a private sector Fortune 500 company, and you've got you know a crisis on your hands with say some facility somewhere. You're an, a, an executive at a nonprofit. You've got a team of 20 people, and there's a staff crisis, or you've got you know a, you're a federal government official. You're Don Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense. How do you communicate with your staff? How do you communicate with the people closest to you? How do you sort of tear out how important that is? in the process of communicating with the outside world like what about that inside piece of it your team and your staff and your employees can you, can you, can you touch on that uh, I, good because i get to use my favorite saying which anybody who's listening that's been in any of my classes will recognize it it's mission first people always mm -hmm. you got to get the mission done that's that's non-negotiable you have to do it but just as non-negotiable is you got to take care of your people your organization mm -hmm. And a big part of that is making sure they understand what's going on because they're not just cogs in, in a machine. They are humans who feel threatened by the crisis as much uh, organizationally as personally. And you have to understand that as a leader. So you've got to take care of them. You've got to find a way to do it. You know, if you've got a 20 person organization, put them all in a room, talk to them, mm -hmm. stay there and answer all their questions, not just the first couple. If you've got a big global organization, it's harder. You have to be a little more imaginative, but you got to do it just as much. And with a, a, a publicly owned corporation, you got stockholders, you got a lot of, of different kinds of audiences you have to reach. You've got to reach them all. You cannot ignore that. If you do, your crisis will define you in the negative sense. Mm -hmm. Anything to add, Greg? Yeah, uh, building systems, uh, especially when you especially when you have a large organization like that, is important. And you you need to think in a crisis communication situation not only outwardly how outside audiences are perceiving you, uh, but also um, how uh, how well you're keeping the team together. Um, I, I think I said before that it, you know you've got this team who's looking to you. Uh, to get them through the storm and you want them trusting you after the storm. So even if you didn't do everything right, uh, you've done everything right by them. Excellent. As we sort of move towards the the, the wrap-up point, there's a question here from Scott Barton and I, and, I, and I like it a lot and I think it's been on people's minds, but um, you know, COVID-19 seems to be all that anybody's talking about and what a lot of people are listening to. And so do you guys see audience fatigue or in general in a crisis, do you, because you live in it, feel like you're fatiguing before maybe the, the listening public or other people are? How do you balance that? At what point do you stop talking and at what point do you sort of go back to normal operations? How do you think through that part? Steve, do you want to comment first? Uh, yeah, that, that's a tough one. You've got to balance it. I can tell you when you're the one in the trench fighting, you get fatigued pretty quickly because you're consumed by it. But when that fight is affecting lots of other people, the COVID being a, a perfect example, you know, people are fatigued by it, but they want to know what's going on. They need that communication. They are depending on that to decide, you know, whether they have hope or don't have hope, whether they should be, you know, pulling in barrels of dried beans or whether they can just relax and go order a pizza. Uh, there's, it's a different mindset. So you as the leader have to understand both elements of that, figure it in the calculation and don't ever make that decision lightly. Don't think, oh yeah, everybody's past that. Maybe they are, maybe they're not, but don't just make it on gut. Use your staff, find out what's going on and make the right decision. Yeah, I, I find that um, I don't know anybody that's not tired, but I also don't know anybody that's not hungry uh, for more information because there are so many. I mean, this is a you know this is a global pandemic, and we have different um, you know we have different models coming out all the time, different predictions. 
uh, things that we couldn't foresee, things that have shaken out as uh, as they were predicted. Uh, so I think uh, you know the plot line uh, to this story is uh, keeping keeping people interested because um, you know there's uh, I, I'm starting to find that most people now are uh, know somebody that's directly impacted by uh, by the coronavirus. So it's becoming uh, it's becoming a lot more real, and um, you know life is changing. So people want to know what is next because everything's changing so rapidly. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, last question for the two of you to share with our with our attendees. Um, is there a you obviously have have such deep experience refined through your service, which we all appreciate. But is there a book you've read or you've seen anything you would recommend? Because people have a little bit in some ways time on their hands or they're doing things a little bit differently, right? Do you recommend a book on leadership or or the way it's it's told a story? Do you recommend a movie or anything that, anything that's shaped your thinking along with your own professional experience? Uh, all right, I'll go first because I'm the teacher. Uh, I, I have three. Uh, one, general leadership and a great read, particularly if you're stuck in the house, is called Gates of Fire. It's hmm. by Stephen Pressfield. It's about the, the Spartans, the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. It's way better than the movie 300. Uh, and at the end of it, there's a quotation there about what is a king? What is a leader? The book is fantastic. Read the whole thing. But when you get to the end, you see that quotation, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you want to see people dealing with real world crises, read the book, The Gatekeepers uh, by Chris Whipple. And it's a book about uh, White House chiefs of staff, mm. and it covers several of them. It's a fantastic read. One of the chapters about my boss, Don Rumsfeld, when he was the White House chief of staff. Uh, and so it was a great read for me. And then the last one is anything, if you just want to learn about leadership, anything written by Dr. John Maxwell, he's written about a bazillion books. I mean, literally, Google them. It, it's in the hundreds. They're all good. Uh, and they'll cover everything from communications to all the other myriad of issues about leadership. Well worth the read. If you got the time, go for it. Thank you, Steve. Greg. Yeah, if you're specifically interested in learning about effective crisis communications, there are two books that I would recommend um, uh, recommend right off the top. One is called simply Crisis Communications by Stephen Fink, F-I-N-K. And then the other is Chief Crisis Officer by James Haggerty, H-A-G-G-E-R-T-Y. Great. Well, gentlemen, thank you both very much. 